This is the Mediate Now with Winter Wheeler. Your clear choice for expert mediation and negotiation advice. But it's so much more than that. Take our advice. You will improve your entire life. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Hello, thank you for tuning in today to the Mediate Now. I am so excited to have today's guest, Marta Keller. She is an alternative dispute resolution practitioner, coach, facilitator, and trauma-informed legal wellness advocate. She worked as a lawyer in civil litigation and indigenous reconciliation for five years. Marta represented the Government of Canada at claimant hearings related to the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. She witnessed the devastating effects of childhood trauma in her work with sexual and physical abuse survivors. She also experienced the overwhelming effects of secondary trauma. After her own healing journey, Marta now works with legal and other professionals to equip them with the practical biology-based tools, guidance, and support to increase their resiliency and well-being. Why did I want to talk to Marta today? Okay. <laughs> In my practice, I deal with people who have suffered traumatic events including the event that we are there to specifically discuss, but also trauma that has otherwise happened to them. I can often tell when there's some sort of underlying trauma and often people will just tell me about that trauma, but I am not trauma trained and I have nowhere near the level of experience as my guest today. So I really, really, Murda, I wanna hear about your work in that regard. And I mean, I am just, I'm fascinated by the work that you've done with the Indian residential schools. I'm sure a lot of my listeners will not have heard of this before today. So if you wanna start by telling us actually a little bit about the background of these programs, that would probably be super helpful. So I think what I really need to start with is a little bit of context about the history of why there needed to be a process to help with the healing related to Indian residential schools. And so in Canada, where I'm based, the country was being formed in the late 1800s. And at the time when the country was being formed, the government had a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, when you're forming a new jurisdiction, and especially the size of Canada. And there were Indigenous people living in Canada that had been living here for a long time, way before any settlers came in. And for the Canadian government, they were seen as an obstacle, as a barrier to progress. So the federal government decided because there were these Indian problems that they perceived, quote-unquote, Indian problems, that they had to find a way to resolve this. And so they created this residential school system, which basically meant that children were forcefully taken from their families, their homes, their communities, and placed into essentially boarding schools or residential schools where they had to live and be educated. So there were a number of different factors that made these schools undesirable. The first one was, well, they were taken from their families. Second of all, children were placed in these schools, and these schools were operated by the churches as well as the federal government, and the education provided was substandard. The living conditions were not ideal. The types of food they were eating was not great, 
And on top of that, many of these children ended up being physically, sexually, mentally, and spiritually abused while at these schools. Ultimately, there was this policy that you can really see it today as a cultural genocide that was happening. This Indian problem was best resolved through colonization and assimilation in the view of the government at the time. And so the goal ultimately, if you even look back at some of the policy documents, was to remove the Indian from the child. And you do this best by taking them away from everything they have ever known, placing them into an institution where they're governed by people they don't know, by white people, and then stripping them of their identities that they've been born with and creating a new identity out of them. Oh my God. You know, every time I hear that, it's devastating all over again, like every single time. And I've been aware of this having happened for a while now. I first heard about this situation when I was listening to a podcast called Missing and Murdered by CBC News, which was written and investigated by Connie Walker. And I'm hoping we get another season of that because it was, I mean, transformative for me. I, I, I mean, atrocities happen, right? I, I mean, I'm an American. I'm a Black American. So I understand atrocities. But when I hear about stripping, like literally saying you want to remove the Indian from the child, it is heartbreaking. Like, ugh. it's especially hard for me to hear as a parent, right, that these children are being removed from their families and from the cultural connections that they have. And I just, I can't imagine that happening to my children. And I've got, I mean, I've got a serious, a serious block on being able to think of anything related to my own children. I won't allow it to happen. But teaching my kids, like, about our culture, cultures, we are a multicultural family. But teaching them those things is so important to me. And it's so important to them and who they are. And you can't really strip that from someone who's already experienced it. And even for someone who hasn't, like, when we talk about, like, transracial adoptions and, um, you know, international adoptions and things like that, when you talk to those children as adults, they knew that something was off. They knew that they were different. They knew that something culturally was missing from them. And it has just devastating long, long-term impacts, not only on the child, but the family, the community, and now Canada is forced to deal with the ramifications of everything that happened. Do you feel, um, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you feel that kind of that way about it too? Absolutely. Even just talking about this again, because it's been a few years since I've been involved in this process. And I just feel this heaviness all over and again, because it's really heavy and our children are the future. And if you're taking our children and trying to transform them into something they're not, we're affecting the whole future. And to your other point, there's also this idea of intergenerational trauma. And that's exactly what happened with the children who went to these residential schools, unfortunately, because they were exposed to a different way of being, 
a lot of times being physically, sexually, mentally, spiritually abused, a lot of them picked up those behaviors. Some of them abused other children when they grew up and became adults because they had a lot of challenges coping with it because it was very shameful. And they often thought, as most trauma survivors do, I'm the only one that this has happened to. They bottled it all up. They didn't share their emotions. And so they found coping mechanisms such as alcohol or drugs or other ways to cope with it. And then nobody ever talked about it. And then that then transferred from one generation to the next generation. And the healing is still going on today. My goodness. And so my understanding is that the Canadian government put together the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or TRC in 2008. Is that correct? It's around that time frame, yes. And what actually happened is in, I think it was the 1980s, early 1990s, some leaders within the Indigenous community came forward and said, this happened to me while I was at a residential school. And more and more people started coming forward. And next thing we knew, we had a class action lawsuit that took place. And several years later, there was a settlement agreement called the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. And there were five components to that settlement agreement. And one of them was the establishment of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Okay, wow. I did not know that, how that came about. That is, I don't know, the word is not crazy. It's <laughs> it's it's, al- it's almost unbelievable, but I mean... Thank goodness for the people who did come forward and and finally start talking about those things. So was it a shock to white or non-Indigenous Canadians when this information started to come out? Or was it something that was known, just not spoken of? I think it was something that was known about and wasn't really spoken about as much as it should have been. Right. So can you tell me, us, those listening, and me, (laughs) can you tell us about your role in in this issue and exactly what you were doing? Sure. So as I mentioned, this settlement agreement had five different components. My component that I was involved with was called the independent assessment process. And so this was a non-adversarial out-of-court process to compensate victims or survivors that had experienced physical and sexual abuse. And so these hearings were actually set up in a very unique way in that when I was at the hearings, I was representing the federal government. There was the claimant who had gone to a residential school represented sometimes by a lawyer, sometimes they self-represented, and then there was an adjudicator. And during these hearings, the adjudicator was the only person who was allowed to speak to the claimant and to ask them questions, to get their testimony, to understand their story. And then we would take breaks. And that was when the claimant would step out of the room and myself, the adjudicator and claimant counsel would then have conversations about have all the issues been covered? Do we need more evidence? And then we would have those private discussions. Okay. And so what, you know, as far as the claimant is concerned, what was that like for them? I mean, if you have information on that perspective, because the way that you describe it, it feels very clinical. So how did those proceedings actually go? Were they, I mean, super emotional and 
like horrendous. Like I mean, I I I'm just hoping for a little bit um, of clarification on what that really looked like. Sure, and it always varied as it always does uh, from hearing to hearing. Right. It was always a very collaborative environment because all of the parties at the table were there in the best interest of the claimant. So that was number one. So everyone's there in the best interest of the claimant, but what what does that actually mean? So you have the hearing, the claimant tells about their experience, what happened to them, and then what is the what is the goal? So the claimant then leaves and the rest of you have a conversation about the claimant. What's the goal? What's the end game for that situation? The end game, well, the independent assessment process was for compensating survivors if they met the all the eligibility components and whether they met the compensation model. And the compensation model was broken up into different portions. There was the claimant had to establish that an act had occurred to them, whether it was sexual or a physical act that had occurred to them, and then the degree to the act. And then there were compensation points awarded for that. As we've talked about, there's harms that obviously happen once you've gone through a difficult situation. And so then the claimant would tell the story after they were done in the residential schools, what had happened to them? How did that harm? How were they harmed by what had happened at the schools? And so then, then they would be awarded additional points for that. There was also a category for aggravating factors which meant, you know, was there racism involved? Were they threatened while they were at school? So elements like that, that also added additional points. There was also a piece for loss of opportunity, because if you've gone to residential school, you became an alcoholic as a result. Some of some of these survivors, they basically spent decades as alcoholics, which meant that they lost opportunities to make income and to really have a thriving career or life. And so additional points were awarded for that. And then a final piece was for future care, because many of the claimants who came to the hearings had done very little healing on themselves. And so it was an opportunity to get awarded some financial compensation so that they can then seek traditional healing in their communities or elsewhere. In terms of what actually happened at these hearings is that at times they were very, very emotional. You would have claimants that would just completely break down while they're giving their testimony because for some of them, as as you've worked with some trauma survivors yourself, some of them have never really talked about this. And so this was the first time that they were talking about this to a group of complete strangers. And it was as all traumas are, it's like an overwhelm to the system. And so for them to talk about everything all over again, being completely sober, it was like an overwhelm to their system. And they just broke down and we would have to take breaks so that they would get back into a place where they can continue talking. Then there were other claimants at the room that were just, they almost seemed very numbed out. They were very quiet they said what they needed to say, but they didn't say any more. They weren't very interactive. They were just there because they wanted their compensation and they, and they had to tell their story. And then that was it. So for you in the room representing Canada, what did that feel like? That's a good question. <sighs> and it's an interesting question, too. Um, I was doing this work, first of all, because it was really meaningful work to me. 
it was an opportunity for me to rectify wrongs, even though I wasn't necessarily the person who had committed the wrongs 100 years ago. I was there helping to rectify what was happening. So in that way, it was really meaningful work to me. At the same time, it was difficult being a representative for the government because from the view of the claimant or even sometimes the claimant's counsel, I was seen as the quote unquote bad guy because I represented the institution that had imposed all this harm. And so sometimes it was hard because if something wasn't going according to plan with claimant counsel, then sometimes there were some snarky comments at Canada about how I'm the bad guy and how Canada is always trying to do more things to manipulate everything. And so that was really difficult for me because that's not why I was there. I was there because I wanted a fair resolution. I wanted healing. I wanted progress for Indigenous people. I mean, you know, honestly, I have to say that it is impressive, frankly, that you were able to take that on when it is such an emotional situation and being able to kind of, I won't, I don't know, take the abuse that was being thrown at you and doing it because you knew that things had been done that were wrong. And if you had to be the scapegoat that day so that someone could find some healing, that was okay. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Most people I don't think can do that. I'm not sure I could do that. Frankly, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I want to believe I'm as tough as you, Marta, but I'm not quite sure that I am. That's really, really heavy to deal with and work with for as long as you did. So I know that we mentioned earlier that you did suffer your own trauma as a result of this work. Was it mainly from hearing the atrocities that had happened to these Indigenous people? Or was it also about taking on the blame in that situation for an entire country um, for things that had happened well before you were around um, and had nothing to do with? So, or, or maybe it was both. What was the, what, what was the trauma trigger for you? I think it was actually both of them. And I started doing this work on a part-time basis. And so I had some exposure, but then I was doing civil litigation work in the office. And so I wasn't really exposed. But because I really enjoyed this work, I had an opportunity to jump into it full time. And so I did. And that's actually when I started noticing that something wasn't quite right in my body, but I loved the contribution that I was making by being part of this work. And so I just kept pushing forward. And one of the components at the hearings is that at the very end, that was an opportunity where I had a chance to speak. And so oftentimes, because I didn't want to take on the blame for Canada, even though I was representing the federal government, I didn't want to take on the blame because even though I was a representative, I didn't want that because I knew, just like you said, it's heavy. I didn't want to carry that on. And so for a long time, I actually didn't say I'm sorry on behalf of the government, because that was a way that I was protecting myself. I would acknowledge the claimant for their courage, for their strength, for being there and and wish them well on their healing journey. That was a large part of what I said. And there was one day where a claimant counsel approached me and said, why don't you ever apologize? 
why are you not apologizing? You're, you're representing the government and my client wants to hear an apology from Canada. And so I started apologizing from time to time shortly after that. And it actually didn't feel good in my body, but I started doing it because I thought that I should be doing it. And it was around that time I started noticing more and more that something wasn't feeling right within me and that I was starting to take on the blame for what had happened to all of these children. And on top of that, because I was constantly exposed to stories of physical and sexual abuse, that I was also starting to take on. And I had to eventually stop doing the work because I had secondary trauma. My gosh. Okay. And so when you realized that you realized what was happening to you, how did you immediately respond? Like, did you know right away or did you start seeing a therapist and the therapist told you? Um, how did like how did you even realize that that was the problem? I knew that I'm a very body oriented person and I could feel stuff happening in my body. Like I was having little sensations in my body, but for a long time, I was just ignoring them, just saying, well, it's okay. You know, it just, it was a difficult hearing, but it's okay. It doesn't mean you can't do the work, but it just kept accelerating and accelerating. And it got to the point where it was really difficult for me to, to concentrate, to look on my files. And I ended up contacting the lawyer's assistance program. And then they told me, well, you likely have secondary trauma and it might be a good idea for you to take some time off from work, which I was a bit horrified at this thought because this work had become my identity. I had enjoyed doing it for so long because of the contribution I was making. And so for me to stop, it was like, what, what, what am I going to do if I'm not doing this work, if I'm not uh, being a helper for this process? And so I'm like, nope, I'm going to go back to work. <laughs> but then I went back to work and I couldn't function. <laughs> I just couldn't function. And so I ended up taking some time off I then took, I actually took two months off. I took the whole summer off. And when I returned back to the office, I remember we had actually moved offices. So we were in a completely different building and I never even touched my files that day, but something felt so uncomfortable and so not good in my body that day that by the time I come, came home, I, I actually just like burst into tears. And I realized I, I can't do this work because I had taken on too much of the work and I needed to go on my own healing journey. Now I can relate on a teeny tiny level to what you're saying. Early in my career, I represented juvenile offenders, you know, who had been accused of crimes. And that was some horrifying work, frankly, for for people who can do that day in, day out for years on end. My God, I, I commend them really. I, I lasted a couple of months. I I heard one parent come in and say that they didn't even want their child. So, you know, it would be great if the state would just take the kid. And I was like, did you mm-hmm. just, like, you just said that out loud in front of your child, too. And, you know, it's like, it's no wonder I have represented this child for committing crimes so many times in just a few months. Yeah. And I did. I started to feel terrible. I just, I could not, I could not continue in that line of work. And 
that was at the when I was working with juveniles, that was toward the end of it was at the end of some other things that I was doing for that organization that I was already uncomfortable with and didn't enjoy. It made me very, um, very upset and triggered that kind of trauma response for me, too. So I can understand that. I got out really, really quickly. I didn't <laughs> didn't need a therapist to tell me this isn't right. I was like, oh, I can't. Oh, no. Oh, no, girl, you need to leave. Um, and I did. I left like right away. But again, which is why I'm so fascinated by your commitment to this, which is so hard. It is so personal and emotional. And the people that you helped, I mean, I can't even imagine how cathartic that experience must have been to hear someone who represented Canada say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry this happened to you. I can't fix it, yeah. but I can offer this and I can offer that and I can apologize and I can mean it. So, you know, I, I do. I think that that is just an amazing thing. And I, I'm not sure we would ever see something like that happen in the United States with our indigenous population, with our African-American population, with our Hispanic population and some of the terrible things that that this country has done. Um, I just don't know that we would ever see it. So to me, from where I sit as an American, the program itself, Truth and Reconciliation, is huge. It's a big deal. And I wish we did have have something like that here for all of the people who need it, for the Asian American population. And I mean, if I sat here and tried to go through every atrocity that's happened in this country, we'd be here all day. And my guy, I shouldn't be laughing at that. I, I warned you that I laugh inappropriately, but I shouldn't be laughing at that. But it's true. Like if we, I just, I can't even imagine that happening in this country. Like all of us sitting down and deciding that we wanted to make amends and apologize for things that like we technically didn't do, but that we may have benefited from in some form. I just don't see it happening here. I hope I'm wrong, but you know, I'm, I'm typically right. <laughs> so when we talk about trauma and being a trauma-informed legal advocate, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that you were given a lot of training and how to deal with trauma? And what what does it mean before I sit here and pontificate? Well, sure. So the first thing I want to say is that when I was actually doing the work I was with residential schools, I would say I actually wasn't trauma-informed. And I think that's partly why the work ended up affecting me as much as it did because I didn't really understand trauma, which seems probably really strange because here I am working with trauma survivors. And at the time, no one had really given me any proper training around working with trauma and what trauma actually means. And so a large part of what I've learned is one through my observations of working with trauma survivors, then going on my own healing journey where I worked with a number of different therapists and different practitioners, but also studying trauma. Um, and I'm currently studying with uh, Stephen Hoskinson from Organic Intelligence, where he he's teaching about trauma and really how to move beyond trauma. 
And so that's where I've really gained a lot of my experience, which was actually beyond what I did in my actual practice at the time. So what does it mean to actually be trauma-informed? I would say that at a minimum, it means three things. The first thing is that you're assuming that every single person you're going to work with might have trauma. So whether or not they've actually disclosed it or not, you're going to assume that they have trauma and they may even have unresolved trauma. And if it's unresolved, it's likely going to be triggering them. The second thing that it means to be trauma-informed is that you have an understanding of what trauma actually is and the effects on the body and on the brain. And then the third aspect of what it means to be trauma-informed is that it really necessitates having strategies actively showing up in a way so that you're not going to re-trigger your survivor, your claimant, whoever that you're working with. How long did you work through that? Or how long did that process take? How long did you work on that training to become informed? And I know I just asked you a question, but (laughs) a big statement. Um, I think it's really, really bizarre that you were doing this work and never given never given the the tools that you needed to really do it. And maybe that speaks to a lack of awareness on the part of those who organized this, of the level of trauma that they were about to see, potentially. Do you have any information on maybe why you aren't given that kind of training? Was it an oversight? Did people not understand how traumatic it would be? Or was it, it was too expensive? We, we didn't want to put that into it. We wanted to save the money for, for awards. Any ideas? I'm sure there was a lot of factors that were playing into it. I know that because this process has been going on for over a decade, and it's almost wrapped up at this point. And when I joined in, I was joining in towards... I don't know if I would say the tail end, but sort of maybe the mid end of when things were happening. And from what I understood is that there were actually more supports available to staff prior to when I came. But because where I was working, we were essentially considered a a sunset department, which meant that after a number of years, that department would stop operating because we would fulfill our mandate. There was maybe less of a need for, or they believed that maybe there was less of a need to have access to that information or access to to healing. And so that wasn't provided for us. Um, What I do know is that they did provide us a training once or twice a year, but my job required me to be on the road. So even when this training was happening around secondary trauma and how to really protect yourself, that wasn't enough because when I wasn't attending it, because I couldn't, because I was on the road doing my work. And honestly, having a training once or twice a year on a topic that's affecting you all the time, for me, isn't going to cut it. It's the kind of thing that you need continuous reminders about. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would imagine that that's, that's ongoing mental work and it's hard to protect yourself from other people's trauma when you're sensitive and you care. So my goodness, I don't know. This question may be too personal, so don't answer if you don't want to, but what did that look like though in your, in your day-to-day life? Like how, how were you going home? Like, how were you feeling? You're like, Oh, okay. 
long day of that. I'm going to go eat some ice cream. Like what, what did that look like? What did that trauma response look like for you? In, in my own body? Mm-hmm. Yes. Sure. Yeah, I can answer that. Um, so initially it was just like, like, a, like almost like a sensation in my body. And most of my sensations tend to happen in my chest. Um, where I'm feeling emotions or any kind of sensation. So I would just feel like a bit of a heaviness. And that's all it started off is just this heaviness. And then I would, you know, I would shrug it off. Sometimes I would talk about it with a colleague and then I I felt better. But over time, the heaviness would stay with me, not just after my day ended, but the heaviness started coming home with me. And then it would sit with me. And over time, I just started noticing it was almost like I had brain fog and I would be looking at my, my materials and I wasn't really, not that I wasn't seeing clearly, but it was just really difficult to concentrate on what I was reading. And at the height of when I was really challenged by, by all the feelings that were coming up for me is I couldn't even watch TV. Um, because anytime somebody swore or I saw any sign of violence or any sort of aggression, I was just like, well, I don't even want to watch this. And it was just, it was really difficult. It was almost like my body was shutting down in order to protect itself. And that's really what happens after you've had a traumatic event or after you've been exposed to a lot of trauma is your body at the end of the day wants to keep itself alive. And if you're being overexposed to the things that are overwhelming your body, then your body is going to do what it can to protect you. And it's an autonomic response. And so there was really nothing I could do about that because my body was just doing what it had to do to protect me. Right. Right. And, and tell me again, how long did you do that work? I did the work for five years. Five years. Five years. Yeah. And when you finally moved on, how did that feel? Were you relieved immediately or did it take a while? I think I was relieved. My body was relieved (laughs) that I wasn't being exposed to the content anymore. My mind, and I guess another part of my body was sad because for so long, this had been my work. I had dedicated five years of my life to this work and I planned to stay there until this work ended. But my body decided that it had other plans for me. And so... (laughs) <laughs> so so I was sad and I felt a bit lost for a while because I'm like well what do I do with myself now right but eventually you just find your way and now I'm proud to say that I am someone who is trauma informed and really educating others about what it means to be trauma informed and how to work with trauma survivors really excites me today because it's such important work and there's so much trauma in our world today and the more that we can equip ourselves with the tools and the understanding we can serve our clients better after you've left and you're you're moving on what made you want to work with other professionals and kind of you know uh you know arm them with this type of information and help them um with dealing with trauma how did that come about and and if you could elaborate on you know how you go about doing that work that would be that would be helpful sure so I think my main inspiration came from my own healing journey and seeing how much I struggled and realizing that it didn't have to be such a struggle for me 
that had I been informed, had I been paying attention to my body, because as you know, as legal professionals, we can be very much in our heads. We live in our heads, we're paid for our thinking, and so we spend all our time in our heads. And we're, it's almost like we're neglecting the rest of our, our body. Oh, yes. Our body is constantly speaking to us, and it has so much wisdom, and it has this natural ability to protect us and to heal us. But if only we listen to that, then we can have a much better life. And so that's really my own inspiration. So that's where my inspiration comes from is my own struggle and then seeing how, how that affected me and it didn't have to affect me. And so what I really love to do now is to teach others about their body and strategies for how they can really cope with other people's trauma um, and just understanding the nervous system and how everything functions. And if you want, I can maybe share a couple of things about that. Yeah, please. Sure. So when you are working with people where you're going under the assumption that they may have trauma, there's a number of things that we can do to make sure that we're not re-traumatizing them based on our knowledge of trauma. And so what I have found, and it was actually stuff that even though I wasn't trained back then when I was involved with the Indian Residential School files, a lot of what was being done was actually from a trauma-informed perspective. I didn't realize that at the time, but today I realize it. So for example, I think it's really important, and I'm sure you do this in mediation work as well, where you're setting the context for people. You're letting them know why we're here, what are we going to do, how are we going to do it, and all those factors to get them to understand why, because that at least creates a bit of certainty for people. Another aspect I find when you're working with trauma survivors is because, especially if they have unresolved trauma, a lot of them tend to be living in those survival defenses of fight, flight, freeze, and shutdown. And especially if they're more in the freeze and the shutdown realm, they tend to be slower. And so if we can speak to trauma survivors in a slower pace, then they're more likely to stay with us and to follow us. A big part of being trauma-informed is to help people to move out of those places so that they can communicate with us. And so at the end of the day, the body craves safety and connection. And it's kind of ironic because in many respects, these are like two competing needs that we have. On one hand, the body wants to keep us safe. On the other hand, it wants to connect us to other people. But that could mean that we're not going to be safe if we're connecting with other people, right? So it's mm -hmm. kind of like this conflict that's happening. But if we can learn to create safety and connection for people through, for instance, context setting, slowing down, even sometimes just the way that we dress up finding ways that we can relate to other people so that we're creating that connection with them, then that can make a big difference for them. That's amazing. I love that. Like it, so it sounds so simple, but yeah, you're right. When I'm, when I'm mediating, I definitely, I tell people exactly what's going on, what's going to happen. What does this process look like? what exactly we're there to talk about. And um, I allow them the ability to tell me about other things that are bothering them. So they can get that, they can kind of get that out. And yeah. we can say, okay, I understand that that's going on, but that's not why we're here today. I can't help you with that in this context today. 
but I know that that's happening. I'm informed about how you're, you know, how it's affecting your decision making and all of that. But let's try to focus on this issue today. Yeah. And it does. It helps people to know that I know what they're what they're going through and I know what they're upset about. And it helps them zone in or focus on the actual problem that we can handle that day. (laughs) So it's extremely helpful. Like you said, I didn't realize that that's like a trauma informed way to handle things, but it makes sense when you put it that way. Trying not to re-traumatize people. I, I never even thought about that. So I'm going to have to, I don't know, maybe do some introspection on that and I hope I haven't re-traumatized someone by talking to them about these things. But my my God, I mean, you left me with a lot, a lot to think about. This is the last thing that I want to be doing is re-traumatizing someone, right? Mm-hmm. There's a certain amount of I we need to talk about the trauma so that we can we can put it in in its like little container here. Like we acknowledge it, we move it, and then we talk about the thing we can handle. But I don't want to re-traumatize someone. And so I guess for me, the way that I think about it is I'm never really asking anyone to relive whatever the trauma is that, that we need to put away today. I don't know. Is that, is that, like, is that, is that helpful? I don't know. Am I doing that right or wrong? I'm not sure. I feel like we're going to end this and I'm going to have some, like, more questions <laughs> than we can answer. But what do you think about that? Well, from what I've been learning from my trauma mentor, he often says that we don't really need to focus on the trauma in order to heal. There's a lot of trauma education that says you have to work through your trauma. You have to process through your trauma. You have to discharge the energy of your trauma. And it doesn't necessarily have to be to feel better because there's this view that you have to feel bad in order to feel better. And unfortunately, within the legal system or within mediation, we have to walk people through their trauma in most cases, especially if we have to resolve problems or for compensation, which is unfortunate, but that's just how it works. But when it comes to healing, we don't actually have to go into those traumatic places. And it's really about finding a way to learn to be with the sensations of our bodies, the images that are coming up for us, the feelings that we're having, as well as the thoughts and learning to work with that and finding the ways that actually support us the best. So that way we can then feel good and move through our lives, if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. That really does clarify that for me. I no longer feel badly about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about about what I've been doing. I've not I, I I believe I've not been re-traumatizing people. Um so that's good. Thank you <laughs> for reassuring me. Um but you I mean you've been a fantastic guest and I am so grateful that you agreed to talk to me today. Um I was absolutely fascinated by your bio and your profile when I came across it. And then when we got to have a conversation together, I thought that your story is, I mean, it's one that definitely needs to be told. We need to educate people, not 
only on these residential schools and what happened at these schools, but how your government was able to acknowledge what happened, take responsibility, and initiate healing. And I think that that is, I mean, on a on a global level, that's just, that's a huge thing for a government to do because it, it rarely happens. But we can also take that down to to the micro level and start to help the people around us heal and feel better about things that we know that they're going through that we didn't necessarily inflict. Um, you know, it's it's a um, it's a very mature, informed, caring move, I think, for us to be able to do that. And if we can teach people how to do that in their own lives with the people around them every day. I think that we make a big difference. So I'm, I'm grateful that you shared. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. Is there anything else that you wanted to say that you wanted to get in that I didn't ask you about? Sure. I think the one thing I just wanted to mention is that the federal government in 2008 did apologize for what it did. It actually went on the air nationwide and issued an apology for what had happened at these Indian residential schools, which I think is a beautiful and bold move on behalf of the government and exemplary for for other nations, especially because every nation has harms that were committed by its government. And to see that being role modeled by my, my own government, because I am in Canada, was really like, wow, I was really impressed. That's good. So if it was powerful for you, I can't even imagine what that felt like for the indigenous population. I hope I, I hope that that was helpful. I hope so, too. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful thing to try to, you know, work together to get through a past trauma. It's difficult. It's difficult. And to be able to do it and do it in a in a systematic way, in a way that you didn't realize at the time was was trauma informed. That's fantastic. If people want to reach out to you and find you, what's the best way to go about doing that? They can find me on LinkedIn just by searching my name, Marta Keller. Okay, perfect. And I will include that in the show notes as well. Thank you again, Marta. I appreciate you. This has been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Winter. Thank you for listening to The Mediate Now. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Music and audio editing provided by Encompass Podcast Studio. Take our advice. You will improve your entire life.